Hi, this is Joe Chambers. Thanks for watching Musicians Hall of Fame Backstage. Actually, this week is kind of a blend between Musicians Hall of Fame Backstage and Musicians Hall of Fame The Vault Series. The reason being, it was shot on location in Los Angeles a few weeks ago in our hotel room with a very talented bass guitarist, and when he's not playing bass, he's playing guitar for the one and only Paul McCartney. Brian Ray. Brian also spent almost two decades performing and being the band leader with Etta James. When we come back, Brian Ray. Welcome back to Musicians Hall of Fame with Brian Ray. Brian, thank you so much for doing this, especially so quickly here and while we're in L.A. And it's a pleasure to be here, Joe. Thanks for asking me, really, yeah. Like what most people want to know, and we're just going to act like nobody knows, how did you get started and what made you want to get started in music? Well, I was born in 55, and that was sort of the year, coincidentally, that rock and roll hit the mainstream. And uh, my, I had an older sister, 15 years my elder, who was in love with this guy, Elvis Presley, and Little Richard, and the Everly Brothers, and Rick Nelson, and Chuck Berry. There was something that happened. It was not just the music. It was the whole thing. There was a sense of uh, excitement and danger, and that um, it was a younger generation's music. I, I put together the fact that the ladies loved them and all these new artists that had just come out. And I think that just resonated with me. I just said to myself, I want to be a part of this. Inside, at three years old, that I knew. I didn't know till later that I could actually do that or that I would actually do that, but I know I wanted to. That was the most exciting thing I could think of. So what was your first introduction to a guitar or whatever instrument you started with? Well, um, so I gravitated towards guitar, but I had my little time with every instrument in a rock and roll band. I was fascinated with electric keyboards for a while with not so much bass, but that came later, with drums, with lead singing. I wanted all of it. I wanted to do all of it. So I got to touch on all of it as a kid. But with the guitar, I think the Elvis and the Bill, the Bill Haley records and the Chuck Berry records put guitar solos as a part of their records and featured them in such a way that it just seemed fun to me. I want to do that. And, um, you know, hearing, um, you know, Scotty Moore solo on Heartbreak Hotel or Jailhouse Rock, you know, just incredible uh, guitar playing. And it was very you know, evocative of uh, an exciting life to me. So anyway, I think that that started it for me. But also, my sister Jean, who turned me on to all these artists, was herself a guitar player. And she was soon to be married to a guy who was a folk artist who grew up with uh, Phil Oaks. And they formed a duo after singing in the new Christy Minstrels, a big sort of folk ensemble and um, yeah, they split off and did their own thing and they got a great deal with Phillips and then with Verve 
folkways, I believe, and they were called Jim and Gene. And uh, they did some great records. I think there's four records in all. One is a compilation record. And um, yeah, I was in love with that music, in love with my sister and, and her husband, Jim and Gene, and into now rockabilly and now hot rod music and now, you know, um, you know, doo-wop and rhythm and blues. And, uh, you know, I just, I went through all the great stuff like anyone our age would. Um, what was your main instrument at that time? Was it, was it bass or was it guitar or both? Or? Well, I hadn't really started playing yet. And it wasn't until the British invasion started that I started to think, well, wait, these are guys that aren't that much older than me and they're doing it together. And it's not like a produced thing. It's like bands. This is the Beatles. It's the Stones, the Who, the Animals. They're all young lads, you know, and that exactly this day, that many years ago in 1964, the Beatles made their um, debut on Ed Sullivan show, February 9th. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was there on the floor and saw this sort of tidal wave of joy and enthusiasm and talent coming at me. Now, I'd heard their songs on the radio, uh, and I may have even bought a single, but uh, to see them live on television was a whole nother thing, and it really lit me up. And uh, I think that it was soon after that that I started really bearing down on it and learning some guitar. And I learned, I think, Gloria might have been the first song that I learned on, on an acoustic guitar. What was your first gig in front of an audience? I think it was with my sister Jean. Uh, she and her husband Jim had separated. It was about 1969, and uh, she was now getting her solo career going. And she invited me to come play with her at the Los Angeles Troubadour. What was your first guitar? Well, my first guitar that was my own was a $5 guitar from, uh, from Tijuana, Mexico that my sister Jean bought me from over the border. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I started crying. Well, what was your first like, real like, Fender-ish? Or... My first uh, uh, good electric guitar was a Fender Telecaster. And that got stolen. Soon after, I got a 1968 Gold Top Les Paul with um, P90s, you know, the first reissued Gibson Les Paul. And uh, that's certain. That? I don't have that. I, I wanted to trade it for something else eventually. You know, just that spirit has always been a part of me. Like, you get into a guitar, you get really into that guitar, then you start getting into another guitar. And back when you're a kid, you know, the thought of having two of them is unthinkable. Right. Yeah. You know, now it's a different story. I have more than two, but, um, you know, so that, that guitar I traded and got a 345, a Gibson 345. Soon after that, I bought my first vintage Les Paul. It was 1973. My sister's then boyfriend, Chris, had bought this gold top Les Paul with humbuckings, a 57, first year of humbuckings. And, oh, I treasured that thing. And uh, that that cost me um, a wild $850. And I was outraged. That was just a lot to spend. But um, he assured me it would go up in value. And it did. Uh, and I still do have that to answer your question, because I know you were going to ask me. Mm -hmm. That's sort of my favorite guitar, my 
main guitar and it's the guitar that I did my first audition with Etta James uh, on and uh, that led to 15 years as her musical director and band leader um, and every show I played with her was on that I guitar. Got, wow. yeah. How did that progress? What? How did you meet? How did you meet Etta? Before Etta, I was working with Bobby Boris Pickett playing the Monster Mash. That was my first actual real professional gig, my first tour. And my sister Jean happened to be a backup singer in that band, so that was nice. And most of my high school band was the band for it, and it was, of course, a holiday kind of a thing. You know, every year he sells another. 200,000 albums, you know, but um, there we were playing at a, uh, we had been hired to play a fundraiser for this strange cowboy renegade guy who had just gotten some trouble with the law for grand theft. And he was trying to raise money for his, you know, fines. And, um, so he put on a concert in his backyard out in the valley. And it was a guy named Phil Kaufman who had just lost his friend, Graham Parsons. Uh, and that's the reason he was in trouble with the law was, uh, you know, the way that went down. And, and he was grieving and sad. And now he had to pay this fine uh, for grand theft for the coffin. <laughs> anyway... So I didn't know all that before I said yes, but there we were wearing ghoul makeup, like zombie makeup in a backyard thing with Dr. Demento and the Modern Lovers and some other bands. And uh, we were the Crypt Kicker Five playing for Phil Kaufman right after that crazy caper he did. Phil one day said, you know, I'm going to Edda's rehearsal tomorrow up in the Hollywood Hills. And I understand the guitar player can't make it could you come along? You want to sit in and see if there's something going on there? And I'm like 18 years old. I went, yeah, you know, and uh, we drove up to that, uh, up to that house uh, the next day. It was John Densmore's house from the doors. And there she is, uh, you know, set up with her then killer band, really great players. And I, just this little skinny white haired dude, you know, from Glendale, and I sat down kind of sheepishly and plugged in and just did my thing and jammed along and kind of held my own. I felt like pretty good about it. And she said to Phil after, she says, I like that little white kid. <laughs> and uh, she came up and said, hey, could you come and play with me in Long Beach, California tomorrow night? And I said, sure. And my eyes got all wide and I went down with Phil and played that show. And that was the first of thousands, you know, with Eddie James over the next 15 years. Yeah. That's fantastic. You know? So, um, first time I saw you was at Bridgestone in Nashville with, I guess, the person that inspired you to make a band was with Paul. Yeah, isn't that crazy? It is. I mean, that's unbelievable, isn't it, that it you is saw that? crazy. And then you end up there in that yeah. same... <clears throat> I mean, what can you say? It's um, it's a life of seconds and inches and, and, and chances and opportunities and missed opportunities and and missed chances. And in this instant, <clears throat> in this instance with Paul, I was able to 
you know, be there when a phone call came in to do one song for the Super Bowl 2002 before the anthem, one song. And uh, it was basically an audition to see if I would be the right guy for it with his producer, David Kahn. And uh, David called me. Uh, he had gotten my number from Abe Laborio Jr., with whom I'd just been touring all over France with, with uh, Johnny Halliday and Milan Farmer. And um, I had expressed to Abe, who now had just recorded with Paul, hey, I'd love to have a shot at that. Uh, when he said, yeah, we're looking for a guitar player who plays some bass. And I said, I'd love a shot at that. And uh, Abe said, oh, that's cool. And he put my name forward to David Kahn. I went down to David's office, sat with him, talked with him, played a bass. Then I played his guitar, just talking, not even plugged in, just talking, chatting music, and he's watching my hands. And him? With just David Kahn alone. Okay, okay. And at the end of the meeting, he said, well, this has been great, man. You know, uh, you seem like a cool guy. And Abe says you're great and you look like you play well. And I'm going to put your name forward. There's other guys in line. But um, yeah, we'll see what happens. He put my name forward. That was a Monday. I got a call Tuesday to see if I could be on a plane Wednesday to go to New Orleans. And that's how fast it happened. Within a week of that call, I was back home. How did Paul? I mean, Paul didn't 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 hear you, or Paul left it up to David Kahn. That's trust, man. That is some trust. Well, they'd just done an album together, and uh, and David had brought in that band, which was Abe and Rusty, mm -hmm. and a guy named Gabe Dixon on keyboards. <clears throat> so I think he was uh, fairly trusting of of David Kahn's taste, and you know. I'm very grateful to David Kahn. How did you feel plugging in and playing bass in front of Paul McCartney? Did, was that a, did, what, were you cool? Did, were you freaked out? Were you nervous? Or? Yeah, of course you're freaked out. I mean, this is Paul McCartney. You know, he reinvented bass for pop music. And um, so to me, Paul McCartney is sort of the most important bass player in rock and roll. Um, reinventing it and making it sort of more melodic and more counterpunctal and just incredible visionary besides his writing skills and his singing skills and his arrangement and production skills. I mean, all of it. And then he looked cool too. So, I mean, he was sort of like, you know, a mega god to anyone from my generation and you'd be in that camp. So... Yeah, playing bass for him is a whole other thing because bass is not my main instrument. Guitar is. But, you know, I was just lucky enough to not screw it up that first day. And at the end of the first day of rehearsal, after this is well after the Super Bowl. This is like six weeks later. I'd gone home and woodshedded a bunch because I was told now, we'll see you for rehearsals. I'm like, what? Paul said... Yeah, stick with Abe and Rusty. They'll show you the ropes. See you in March. And I ran back to town, set up a little rehearsal studio, microphone, standing up, acoustic, 12-string, 6-string, bass, and a stack of CDs. You remember CDs. 
And, uh, and uh, I, I just went through every Paul um, Wings and Beatles record that I could get my hands on and learned everything. I didn't have a set list. I had no idea what I was going to play on any of it. I didn't know if I was going to play guitar or bass on any given song, so I'd just learn everything I could. And I would pick out a couple vocal parts and just like, okay, I've got the idea of it, you know. And after a week, I was like, oh, man, this is too much. This is just a lot. Oh, my God, you know. And then the second week, I had Abe come over and, you know, he kind of listened and he was all chill and happy and approving and gave me some confidence. And then, you know, uh, three weeks after that, after more work, uh, I had my first day of rehearsal. And uh, I remember sitting there playing bass and just said, don't look up. Just don't look up. And uh, I just kept my nose down and did the work that was in front of me. And at the end of the first day of rehearsal, he said, okay, guys, sounds good. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. And it wasn't until then that I felt like I could tell more people that I think I'm going on tour with Paul McCartney. More with Brian Ray when we come back. Hey, Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum Backstage fans. Check out our new backstage gear. From t-shirts to coffee mugs, we've got you covered. Not yet a fan? Check out our YouTube channel and enjoy some intimate conversations with the world's best musicians. Dream Events and Catering is Nashville's leading full-service event and catering company. Grounded in exceptional customer service, creative expertise, and dreaming big, we imagine your next event as memorable, meaningful, and delicious. The Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum has been celebrating the men and women who make the music of our lives since 2006. The Musicians Hall of Fame is the one and only museum in the world that honors the musicians that played on the greatest recordings of all time. It's a music city, huh? It's, uh, I mean, where else are you going to get the cats? All the cats that are in this room. From Hank to Hendrix, from L.A. to Nashville, the Musicians Hall of Fame will take you on a musical journey highlighting the talented musicians that created the soundtrack of our lives. Come see what you've heard. And while visiting, check out the interactive Grammy Museum Gallery at the Musicians Hall of Fame. Located in the heart of downtown Nashville in the first floor of the historic Nashville Municipal Auditorium. See you soon at the Musicians Hall of Fame and Museum. Welcome back to the Musicians Hall of Fame backstage with Brian Ray. So when we cut loose at the, a minute ago, we were about to go to the first Paul McCartney tour. Mm. So what happened? Well, so now we had just finished our 11 days of rehearsal. That's all we did before our first, um, our first show in Oakland, California in 2002. Uh, it was April 15th, our very first show. Um, and I was very, very nervous. And I remember we had, we had a pinball, we had a pinball machine backstage in our room and I was like, bing, bang, bing, bang, bing, just anything to burn off some extra energy. Actually, I think it was April 1st. Yeah, I think it was April 1st. Anyway, a very exciting time for us. And, um, I know the whole band was nervous, but Paul wasn't. And when we were about to walk to the stage, Paul came into the dressing room and said, okay, come on, guys, walk this way. And then he started, you know, <laughs> walking funny. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that just put us all at ease. Uh -huh. I mean, if he's so 
relaxed about it, this, this is going to go okay. You know, he was not at all uh, freaking out, you know. And I thought we were on the verge of being ready. You know, we weren't definitely not over rehearsed. We were just about ready. And we went out and we did a show and it was nearly three hours long. And it went very, very well. And we all went, and we all came back to the hotel and had a drink and a laugh and talked about it. And, you know, we were well on our way. You know, soon after that, we were in Madison Square Garden and we were at uh, in Chicago. You know, it was, we were doing the A markets right off the bat. And it was pretty damn fun, I must say. How much bass, how much guitar were you doing? Are you just swapping back and forth? And what... And when you're not playing bass, who's playing bass? Well, if I'm not playing bass, he's playing bass. So all the concerts, that's who's going to be doing it. Yeah. I mean, there's one song at the end of the show where you see the three of us doing a guitar shootout at the end for that song called The End. You know, that jam that happens on Abbey Road. And uh, people will often, like, you know, on social media say, wait a second. You're playing lead guitar on that. Who's playing bass? You know, and I said, ah, Sir Wix Wickens plays bass for that section of the song. Like, I switch off. I start the Golden Slumbers on bass, and then I do a really quick switch with my tech. And at that point, Wix takes over on keyboard bass. Oh, Little man. known fact. Yeah. You're the first to hear about it. Good. You heard it first here. So, um, what did Paul say? Did he say anything at all after the concert? Or the very just... first one, you yeah, mean? Yeah, He was, uh, you know, he was happy. <laughs> he, said, he doesn't say a whole lot. He didn't go like, you were great, and you, you. He's just, he's very chill, you know. And uh, But you know when he's happy, and he was happy. So it's enough for us. You know, he's always, yeah, I've never seen him not, I've never seen him lose it, you know, on, on any interview or anything. No, he's got a great disposition. What are you going to say? I mean, you can imagine being Paul McCartney, you know, since, <laughs> since birth and being famous since you were like 15. Yeah. I mean, wow, that's a lot to sort of carry around. But I think that he um, is the best Paul McCartney in the world. Yeah. Yes. I will go on record as saying that. There's only four people, three people other than him have been in his shoes that, you know, and that's, I can't even imagine, like, I know I've, I've seen him on, before where he says, you know, you walk down the street and people start going crazy and grabbing their phones. I mean, that's got to be a little bit weird, you know. Yeah, for sure, yeah. And and given that, it's true. Like I said, he's pretty relaxed about it. Like, he lives in England and he lives in, part-time in New York as well and he'll walk down the street in New York with Nancy his lovely wife and um, you know he demands some sort of you know uh, life mm -hmm. outside of the bubble you know and he has one so where do you guys record at when you or is there one place for you a number of places where? yeah number of places we've recorded in his studio out in, in England in the south of England We've recorded in um, Air Studios in England at Abbey Road Studios several times in, How was in that? the room. I mean, it's it's really something. You're sitting down there and you're looking up that stairwell 
that you've seen a million times in pictures to that window you've seen so many times in pictures. And it's um, it's a little bit of a buzz for sure. Do they pull out the, the mics and all that? The DJ? Yeah, all the mics, all of the keyboards are still there. You know, he's got the upright piano that he played Lady Madonna on. That's the Mrs. Mills piano. Um, yeah, the old Steinway. Which one of you guys does the, the just this is for me, the, the, the lead riff on Maybe I'm Amazed? Uh, that's Rusty on that one. I play bass on that song. You, y'all ever swap it, swap around parts? No, not so much. Once once you have an arrangement with Paul, it's going to stay that way. Okay. Oh, there's been a couple of times when, you know, Paul's gone, well, why don't you try the solo on that one? And then I do, and then we change it. You know, well, things have changed a couple of times. Do you ever get to play the old Hofner? I have, but you see, he's a lefty. So I'm not going to get that far on it. But yeah, just to, to feel it and, you know, just to kind of get that visceral buzz of holding that instrument that we saw on Ed Sullivan's show this day so many years ago. Yeah. Now, the uh, Texan, I think it was the Texan. Um, the Epiphone Texan acoustic? Yeah. yeah. That was right-handed, though, wasn't it? It was. And, but he, so he just, he, did he switch it around or did he just turn it upside down and play it reverse chord? He, he plays it as a lefty, and, uh, but the bridge had to be reset mm-hmm. at one point because the intonation, of course, the way for you guitar nerds out there, they had to switch the, the, uh, the bridge. Did he have that done when he wrote yesterday and recorded yesterday with it? No. No, he played it for those many years with the intonation sort of opposite. Which is not bad until you get higher up the neck, really, anyway. Too too noticeable, do you think? Yeah, well, Maybe that's you. debatable. But anyway, it, it certainly didn't matter on those songs, did it? Mm-hmm. Nobody cares. No. Because it's so well played and it sounds so great. He's got a very interesting sort of picking style. He does this thing with his thumb and his fingers. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever watched it. It's kind of like a flicking style. It's very interesting. Did he use that one on Blackbird? Yeah. It's the exact same picking style, just a different tempo and feel. So what, like when you play, like what is your, your Les Paul you say is still your favorite guitar? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do, do you use that mainly when you play with, uh... I toured with my old gold top for a few years with Paul, but at a certain point, I got a little bit scared of it getting damaged. Right. Uh, I, I I wouldn't be afraid of it being stolen because we got great security, as you can imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just wear and tear happens on a guitar. Mm-hmm. But to a great degree, Paul tours with his classic guitars and basses the Epiphone Casino that he played the, the Taxman solo on. You know, that's out with us. And the bass that he played on it, all that, all that stuff is really with us. The Texan from yesterday, from all the early wing stuff too. But, um, so that gave me sort of license to bring my 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 fine old acoustic and my, my old electrics out with me. Uh, the amps are newer, because you want those things, you know, that are a little bit more sort of related to electronics and, and tubes and things like that. You want that to be fresh. But the others I tour with, uh, the Gold Top, no, I've, I've sort of brought that back home to just rest a little bit because right. I, I don't want to risk it. It's the one guitar of my collection that 
I couldn't live without. Yeah. Also, for the guitar nerds out there, you, you've got your own line with Gibson now, right? Yeah, I have a signature model, and they've just come out with another one. So now I have two of them. And uh, Now, are you using those on tour? Yeah. Um, my first signature model, the black one, is kind of it's called Silver Fox is mm -hmm. the finish. Kind of a grainy black with white uh, appointments on it. And I use my new one, which is a different pickup configuration, a P90, nerd alert, a P90 <laughs> rather than two humbuckings. Yeah, that's a that's a fun one. Did you, I, I saw, I think I said you play a Gretsch before, I know. Yeah, yeah. I have to mention the Gretsch, yeah, which is signed by Dwayne Eddy. Oh, did yeah. he? Uh, yeah. He's, he's such a great guy. Really great guy. So, yeah, Brian, thank you so much for coming over on short notice. Uh, it's it's uh, I can't thank I really can't thank you enough for doing this. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. Everybody, uh, watch next week on the Musicians Hall of Fame backstage. And again, Brian, thank you so much. Mm -hmm.